are you doing any ice fishing out in Thunder Bay? Yeah, we've Thunder actually, Bay. you're listening any to the Hunter Conservationist podcast. You can, so <clears throat> you can ice fish on Thunder Bay. I think there's some other bays on Superior that are a little bit better, like, like Black Bay and um, some of the other bays. You know, there's actually perch and you know, there's walleye in some of those back bays too. I think uh, there's some inland lakes that are really good for uh, ice fishing, but I'm I am really busy during the winters with uh, with field work. So actually, most of my ice fishing I've done is is at my field sites. It's in the um, summer. What's that? <laughs> most of your ice fishing's done in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> well, during the winter, I'm real busy with field work, but yeah. I do get some ice fishing in and. Yeah, there's some great ice fishing, you know, in northwest Ontario. Um, and then, yeah, during the summer is probably when I focus most on fishing. Oh, cool. Is, is winter kind of the go time for for wolverine research? It is the go time for wolverine research. I think, um, you know, we all use bait, um, you know, and, and uh, you know... Th- there, there's more work being done by researchers to use lure, um, you know, automatic dispensers of lure, which which is a great, which is a great thing. Um, but but a lot of us, you know, use bait as well, so beaver. And um, yeah, you can't put a, you know, a beaver out in a box or hanging from a tree um, in the summer because I mean black bears are everywhere. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, gotcha. So most of our, you know, our work focuses in the, in the winter. Huh. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I guess if you're doing any aerial work, trying to find or locate them, you know, with the collars or whatever, then tracks, or is it all satellite stuff now? Tracks are important too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it depends what your question is, but, um, yeah, in Ontario, uh, the, the organization I work for, Wildlife Conservation Society Canada, um, you know, we've done extensive um, surveys for tracks in, in northern Ontario to try to get an idea of of wolverine distribution. You know, that's something that can be repeated. Um, you know, it's, it is a way of monitoring. But, um, yeah, there's, de- you know, there's definitely, there's a bunch of different methods, genetics, cameras, um, you know, there's, there's satellite collars, um, there's aerial surveys, um, all sorts of different ways that you can study wolverines. And some of that has come into fruition, you know, relatively recently, like those techniques have become more, um, more available to researchers. So, and they, and they've just become, um, you know, better tuned to wolverines, particularly like collars, for example. Um, you know, you need some pretty advanced technology to get a for for a wolverine collar but um so so are they actually collaring now because i remember reading they're kind of like built like badgers right like the 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 taper on their neck and their head and and um researchers used to use the implants which of course were dangerous doing giving them anesthetics and doing surgery on them out there in the field so yeah I, when I worked, um, so I started my career working with wolverines actually in Yellowstone, and I worked out of Gardner, Montana, 
And that study used those, those, those VHF implants in the abdomen. So we'd have this, you know, we were in Gardner, we'd have a, a vet come from Big Timber when we, I was on the field crew, so it was me and a few other people that were checking these live traps up, up Bear Creek, which is just outside of Gardner and it's right on the Northern Range there, Eagle Creek and Northern Range of Yellowstone, just such a beautiful place. But the Absorcas and um, yeah, they, a guy would come from Big Timber and implant those Wolverines with, um, with a, a VHF in their abdomen. And then there's Argos collars, um, very inaccurate, you know, collars um, that would give you kind of a rough estimate of where the Wolverine was. It's come a long way since then. But your your point about um, neck, it, it's it's very true. Um, you know, as far as there is there is a difference between the head and the neck it's it's maybe a 31 neck and a 34 head uh centimeter 31 <laughs> centimeter neck and a you know or um you know on a big male um you know on a you know on a smaller female it's like a 26 centimeter neck and uh, um you know a, a 30 or 28 centimeter head it's not it's not a huge difference but you know the technology's come a long ways um in the sense that, um, for one, we, we know we need you know slightly narrower bands, and that that's a simple thing. Yes, you need a narrow band, but then you need a narrow a narrower um, GPS capsule. You need a narrower antenna. Uh, you need lighter. You know both of those things need to be lighter. Um, there's just this cascade of things that has to happen, and and I don't really think that that has happened. Um, you know, for those satellite. GPS collars, that really hasn't happened in North America. I would say, not to toot my own horn, but I would say my my work in Alberta was the first time Iridium GPS collars were were used on Wolverines, and that's just because the technology was there. You know, one of the big GPS collar studies right before mine was store on board GPS collars, which are much smaller. You know, those collars are 180 grams, but they store the GPS data on board so you're required for you to get that data back you have to recapture that wolverine um you know sometimes that's like finding a needle in a haystack right particularly with young males who who might disperse and you might never see them again so you really have to focus in on um you know trying to recapture those animal individuals when i started my phd you know i started actually the first year i i used um in northwest alberta I started using those GPS collars that were store on boards. They were like 200, 180 grams. And then some iridiums, you know, became available around that time too that were about 300 grams um, as far as total collar weight. And and the way I kind of worked it was I, I put those store on boards. I like the store on boards. They're, they're, they're a smaller collar that I don't think is, they have a smaller GPS capsule underneath the, underneath the neck, which doesn't bother them as much. And it's a smaller antenna, you know, on top. So I like those collars, and I like putting those on females. And females are generally, you know, they stay home. Uh, they're phylopatric. They have much smaller ranges. They're very predictable wolverines in some respects, as, as predictable as a wolverine can be. But a female wolverine is relatively predictable. And um, so I would, um, you know, I'd put those storm boards on those females because I knew I'd probably catch them again. Now, when you catch a male, I mean, you just, 
you know, you get to know your population over time um, and, and who's residents and who's not. But, you know, when you first get introduced to a wolverine, you, it's a little bit of a guess. Aging a wolverine is not the easiest thing. Um, and and there's, there's, a little, there's a few things you can kind of look for, maybe like, um, you know, there, there's longer hair, um, kind of kind of its butt hair, I guess you could say, is kind of longer and stringier, you know, that there's a different body composition, you know, older wolverines start looking kind of like linebackers, uh, whereas a younger wolverine's kind of like a, I don't know, maybe like a wide receiver or something kind of skinny and scrawny. And so you can kind of like, you can start to piece together, and you can look at their teeth, and, and there's, a, there's a few little cues you can take that you can start to understand. If I put this collar on this wolverine, am I going to see this wolverine again? And um, I guess until you, until you, start to understand your population, um, you know, those, those iridium collars are, are very helpful because if you do stick mm. a collar on a wolverine and then it just takes off and goes to Manitoba or to Hudson's Bay or it goes to, goodbye. Or it goes <laughs> to Yellowknife, um, goodbye, but you're also tracking them with iridium, right? So you know where they are and, and there's drop-offs on those collars that um, you can program and and have them go off remotely so you know it's it's not 100 percent goodbye but you'd rather have the animal it's easier when the animal sticks around for sure but you can also age the male wolverines by just asking them questions about politics <laughs> and if they get into all the reasons why they hate the government and and uh the leaders of the parties and stuff like that then you probably know they're like maybe in their 60s or more so <laughs> a little older a little, little crankier yeah i'm working on a paper on that but yeah cranky wolverines is a method of aging them <laughs> do you think do you think wildlife research is ever going to get to the point where like there's so many satellites up there and there's ai on board and these these amazing uh, like the military has them like like optics where they can zoom in and read the newspaper that the person's reading on the earth that, that they can basically go like there's a wolverine and then just follow it all the time the ai can just keep track of it on the landscape or find it again or i don't I mean, know if i guess that wouldn't just, work because they're orbiting right each time the thing came back it would have to like well where the hell did that wolverine go i don't have to look <laughs> just think it. of those questions you could ask though i mean what we really struggle with with wolverines is is this, um, you know, you, you, you can be an eye in the sky with a, with a plane and, and, and go over the top of a caribou or, or, a, um, or a moose and get an idea of whether they had a, you know, a calf that year. And so you can get, um, you can look at number of pregnancies and, um, you know, you can get really good ideas of survival because you can see them. Um, you know, Wolverines you can't see, and so you're you're left without a lot of that good fitness level data, like that gotcha. uh, that reproduction, that survival. And if you had a way to track an animal in real time, oh man, um, we'll just get, the... we'll get Elon Musk working on it. Like <laughs> enough of this, like billionaires, like going into outer space for like seven minutes or whatever. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll get him to turn his attention on uh, satellites that can can find and track right down to bulls. I mean, the, it's crazy too. If you look at, you know, for example, they put solar backpacks, 
these tiny, tiny solar backpacks on hawks, for example. And um, mm, they got stuff on bugs too, don't they? Yeah. I mean, it's like bumblebees and stuff. They put little transmitters on them. Yeah. And ones that could, you know, take pictures of satellites in the sky, you know, instead of storing all this data on board, you know, they, they take, um, you know, just picture, very easy, simple pictures of, it's not an easy technology, but simple pictures of the sky. And, and that gives them, you know, very precise locations without, without these big, heavy lithium batteries and, um, yeah, I do. I, I think about collars a lot and and how, you know, what am I going to, you know, in, in 20 or 30 years, looking back on some of this stuff we're doing, the technology is going to change significantly. And mm. um, and just, you know, the, the newer the questions you're going to be able to ask, the more, you know, realistic understanding you're going to be able to get of animal behavior. It's just going to be incredible what those changes are. Yeah, and, the. And, yeah. You're going to look like a like a dinosaur in 20, 30 years, a young scientist. Can you put the collars on and Wolverine? Yeah. Are you crazy or what? Um, well, we we do take. I will say we take animal care. We do we do take animal care very seriously. And, oh, um, for definitely. Uh, and um, nanotechnology might might be something. If yeah. You just stick it in the bait and they eat it, and then that keeps once right. it's in them, they keep keeps track of them. Measures vitals, or something sends you could, little signals back to you. Yeah. When something eats whatever it had, then you know what has eaten because now it's ingested the little nanotechnology thing. You know, I'm they good put, at coming uh, up with the ideas. <laughs> I would have no idea where to go with them from from there. So there's uh, maybe there's some Wolverine studies that um, you know they they implant. They want to understand caching, so they. They, they put a carcass out there and bones with, you know, implants in that meat or in that bone that are traceable so that, you know, the wolverine comes and it eats it and then it scatters it around on the landscape. And so then we can, you know, track those, what, what they scatter because they have implants in them. And, oh, okay. And, not, and not so like you can a... start to understand their caching behavior, you know. Oh, Interesting. Is, yeah, huh. but you got to wonder, you know, how many of those do the wolverines end up <laughs> ingesting, you know? But <laughs> yeah, that's well, well, well. I I think you should you should spend a little bit of time trying to figure out how to research wolverines while ice fishing. I I don't know <laughs> if there's been any citability papers produced on on the value of ice fishing and and wolverine research because you're in uh, Lake Country and should get out and ice fish a bit more you know the the wolverines um there's a commercial fishery on on far northwest in far northwest alberta and bistro lake and they would um they had a commercial fishery for um for walleye and and um so i i i, I um and, and some of the first nations up there i i worked with them a little bit and and uh they would say how they, these wolverines would come out and they would they would rob their cabins at night you know they would have these um you know just big stacks of fish and the wolverines were just always going in and trying to steal, <laughs> you know, steal some of that, um, some of that fish from those cabins. And, and then there was, you know, there's catch that they didn't take that they didn't want, you know, suckers or something like that. And the wolverines were always out on the ice, um, eating that. And, um, you know, you don't think of wolverines as a species that specializes, you know, on fish, you know, maybe bears, but, you know, I imagine salmon's important in some places to wolverines, but, um, that is a situation where you could study wolverines from the ice for sure. Wow. Huh. Cool. 
Well, that's that's what I would want to do: ice fishing and studying wolverines. Yeah. Um, hey, everybody! It's Mark Hall, your host, and it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. So maybe uh, I don't know. Maybe we got some listeners that are trying to figure out another way to track wolverines, and who knows? Maybe the best way is to chase after them in a Toyota 4x4 truck that's kitted <laughs> out and outfitted for bush driving. So if you want to maybe do some research on some citizen science on Wolverines, maybe go check out the folks at Alpine Toyota to rig your vehicle up to get you out into the Wolverine woods. And you'll probably break it, so then you should take it to them and get them to fix your truck because you're obviously not going to go where Wolverines are going to go in your truck. But uh, yeah, Brandon would. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He would. Um, anyway, so yeah, thanks to the folks at Alpine Toyota for being the title sponsor of the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Support us, and they support Ducks Unlimited, so you can feel good when you're supporting them because you know they're doing stuff to help keep confers- con- conservation and conversations like we're having. To you, cool. So, yeah. Thanks, Alpine. Maybe they'll come out with a limited edition Wolverine truck, the wrap on it. Matt, Matt can get one of those. Like I'd the love movie, like, like the movie, the movie one. Um, so, uh, hey everybody, we're uh, joined by Dr. Matt Scrafford, and Matt's a conservation scientist with the Wildlife Conservation Society Canada. WCS Canada. So, um, so speaking of Wolverines, because it's the topic and vehicles. A long many years ago, I was in forestry work and doing field work, and I was in a valley, kind of out Curtis's way, the North Fork of the Lodge Pole, um, and. I was going up a logging road and it was getting up into the mountains, so it had a bit of a grade. You're kind of going in and out of draws and stuff, and I kind of come around the corner, and there was a wolverine on the road, and it was booking it up the road because it obviously heard me coming, and it was just like dust, just like the cartoons. It was just giving her. So I was like, okay, I want to see how fast this guy's going, and I kept you know, my distance, but I, I kept up with him. And I think he was going up an incline, you know, maybe about a six, seven, 8% grade, pretty, pretty good. And he was staying at about 40, 45 kilometers an hour and just going. And then he finally just like bailed off over the bank and down the, the, the low side and kept going. But I was shocked you know it's I also saw a grizzly bear run got caught our wind one time took off and I I was literally like dumbfounded how how fast they could move when when they run but this wolverine was man like I was surprised and I was I remember the first time I saw a wolverine running I was also surprised how low to the ground they are um you know there's not a lot of daylight between you know their belly and the um you know, and, and the ground, but yeah, you know, you think of them as this, you know, this generalist who's, I guess, you know, they're not particularly good at any one thing, but they're pretty good at everything. But 
you know, they're, you know, they, they, they can take, you know, down snowshoe hair and, um, you know, they, um, they're pretty good at chasing, you know, their prey, ambushing their prey. They've got to be pretty fast to do that. I saw one in northern, northeastern BC in the wintertime and, uh, it was chasing a snowshoe hare and it was like, it was step for step keeping up with it. You know, you know how snowshoe hare, they're kind of like left, right, left, right. And they're just going. And this Wolverine was, you know, in tow, but it was, it was not losing ground. So it's an interesting question how they, I mean, we, we've seen a lot of evidence of, you know, through these telemetry GPS coloring projects that snowshoe hare is a pretty big component of their diet. You know, mm. the boreal forest, obviously if at the right time of the cycle is pretty loaded with snowshoe hare you know how exactly they're killing these hares um you know if it's more of an ambush or i mean you i guess you would expect it to be more of an ambush relative to a, a drawn out chase but um you know there's certainly fast and agile um well yeah i mean how was it last summer last fall uh we did a podcast on snowshoe hare and um the researchers we had on were were it was really eye-opening but they were really looking at it from the perspective that the snowshoe hare is the keystone species in the boreal forest of canada they basically said everything even you know ungulates and everything that you know deal with habitat changes but definitely on the carnivore side it's like everything cascades off the snowshoe hair and it was it was kind of it was quite interesting you know when we always think about you know people talk about the keystone species being grizzly bears and you know and, uh, wolves and this sort of stuff but to actually sort of like no man it's the it's the food base in the boreal forest and um so that was that was you know kind of an eye-opening and I guess wolverines are there and bobcats, lynx, wolverine, birds of prey. Sucked to be a snowshoe hare in Canada. <laughs> I remember I did a um, a field research project in, when I was working for the Forest Service in Gardner, Montana, and we would, we would track snowshoe hares that had uh, little collars on way up in the mountains. And um, we had this fox that got into our study area and, and, and that fox would grab these hairs and he brought them to like this, we considered it this graveyard area, but he would go take that hair and bring it, you know, way down, um, down the mountain and just bury it under this, under these trees. Like all these different hairs were, were buried in these trees in this, in this one area. And, um, yeah, you just working in that study, you kind of felt bad for the hairs cause they were just getting picked off by, <laughs> and um, oh man you know with wolverines it's interesting you know i don't you know one of the things that gps collaring has allowed us to do and you know frequent fairly high intensity gps fixes with these collars say every you know the, the studies that i've led have, have been two hour fixes which isn't super high frequency but it's pretty good and, you know, when we get a cluster of GPS points, um, it indicates the Wolverine spent a whole bunch of time in one spot. So that's one of the, probably the funnest parts, I would say my field crews would agree to, like one of the funnest parts of the job is, is going in and trying to get into these cluster sites because, um, 
You know, it's, I think trappers probably experience the same thing and hunters, you know, you, you look at a point on the map and you try to think, how can I get in there using all my tools, which, you know, trucks, snowmobiles, and then, you know, ultimately, um, snowshoes, you know, going on rivers and going on lakes and mm-hmm. using seismic lines and using pipelines and all these different ways. And, and that's where local knowledge is a huge component. So local trapper knowledge, outfitters, um, first nations, just people who recreate in the area, but they're all, you know, pretty integral parts of helping us navigate these landscapes. But one of the things about these GPS collars is, you know, we're getting into these points and, you know, before Wolverines, you know, the, the collars were taking very inaccurate fixes very infrequently. And so you'd get a cluster only in a mass at a massive prey source. So like a, um, you know, an elk, say, dies and in a ravine up a mountain and and the wolverine spends weeks and weeks there. And that would show up, you know, in the data because these GPS collars are taking real infrequent fixes. But those little tiny, um, you know, those little tiny clusters like a snowshoe hare, for example, that might only have, you know, wolverine might only spend four or six hours at a site where it kills a, a snowshoe hare. That, that would never have shown up before. But now that you have these collars, oh, they do show up. Which then kind of brings this idea that you get a, a new kind of outlook on what the diet is, you know, of the wolverine. And, and all, you know, I think this is something that's happening with all the different species. But the technology just kind of paints a slightly different picture. And it, and it moves away from this idea of, like, wolverines are just scavenging these massive prey items. Or, or sometimes they do kill, you know, um, large ungulates. But they're also very adept at predation and um you know beavers and snowshoe hare in particular and grouse i see quite a bit too um but it let you know it it lets you paint a little little bit of a different picture of the species and its ecology huh Hmm. no that's uh i I guess you said right at the beginning they're a generalist so generalist isn't going to walk by things that are furry or with feathers or scales so dead or alive um so let's let's break these guys down a little bit. Uh, maybe maybe touch on the highlights of wolverines, their biology, behavior, ecology um, that defines the wolverine, sets it sets it apart from anything else that's out there. Yeah, I mean, I guess just to start out, I mean they're they're a mustelid. Um, so they're, I think originally, you know, the hypothesis was they were descendant of the Martin and Plesigula. Um, but um, it looks more like some of the evidence is pointing to them actually being descendants of Fisher. And, um, you know, became very cold adapted, um, you know, during the Pleistocene and that ice age. Um, and became, and maybe even outcompeted Plesigula at that time. But they... Um, you know, they became this very cold adapted species. Um, so they have big, you know, snowshoe like paws that allow them to kind of float over the surface of the snow. Um, Wolverine tracks are pretty distinct. I'm sure as a trapper, um, you know, you, you know, some specific things to look for with Wolverine tracks, but, um, you know, they got that plantigrade step. So, you you know, they're, they're moving their, uh, weight over the, over the snow or ground in a, a relatively even way they have a real thick coat stocky build um which allows them to retain heat they have that kind of hydrophobic fur which 
you know, a lot of trappers and First Nations value. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're um, considered a northern species um, found, you know, throughout circumpolar regions. So you're going to find them in the northern parts of North America. You're going to find them in um, in, in Europe. So like um, in Scandinavia, um, Norway, Sweden, and Finland, and, and northern parts of Russia and the boreal forest there, China, and, um, and, oh, wow. and Mongolia. Okay. Yeah, there's some new research in Mongolia. Um, but, you know, those are the environments where they have a, you know, a competitive advantage. Those real low productivity, cold, kind of nasty, snowy places um, where not, a lot, of, not a, lot of, a lot of other species do particularly well. Wolverines do really well. Um, so, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it later. But that's why, you know, climate change is not a great thing for Wolverines, but... Right, right, yeah, um, yeah, and probably get into this in the habitat thing. I just came across a new scientific paper that was kind of talking about roads and seismic lines and stuff, and how coyotes are using the human landscape and moving into Wolverine range, and um, kind of some some impacts in in becoming direct competitors with them and stuff now. So. Um, is it true? So, who, who's is it? Chamberlain that wrote the book, The Wolverine Way. Uh, well, Chadwick, yeah. Chadwick, yeah, Chadwick, not Chamberlain. Yeah. So in in there, he he was talking about like Wolverines um, have proportionally like larger hearts, you know, than say like your other mammal proportions to, to their body size, large, is it thyroid glands and lungs? And, and he kind of said they're, they're basically like, they're kind of like, they got like a big engine for, for the body size and they're just like on high octane, like all, all the time. And would you say that's kind of accurate? Like are they just always full tilt going? Um, or do they kind of like, other than if they're on a kill site, like, do they like lounge around or are they just always giving her on the landscape? You know, it, it, it seems like a lot of, um, I'm going to move as much and as fast as I can until I find something to eat. And then I'm going to. I mean, they have two objectives when they're moving. I mean, they're trying to mark their territory. I mean, wolverines are extremely territorial. Mm. And the the scars and the wounds that we see on these wolverines are just incredible. Um, they beat each other up a lot, um, males in particular. But, but they're, you know, they're moving on the landscape... Um, you know, really fast and, 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 and covering a lot of ground. And you can see that with the GPS data and then they find something to eat and then they, and then they stop for, you know, a couple of days and, you know, their foraging sites are pretty unique in this, in the sense that they, you know, that they, they kind of, they have similar patterns, you know, the Wolverine kills something in one spot. It then has a foraging or it has a, um, you know, resting location where it, it beds down, usually like underneath a big spruce. You know, they actually, they look kind of cozy when you, when you get out there and you look at them and they're just these kind of needle, 
nests almost dug into the dirt underneath these big thick spruce trees and and you could you know that that's a place they love to spend a lot of time and then um you know they also they dig these caves and you know we're talking about how they're a northern species and a cold adapted species you know that snow is a real important component and that's true for a lot of um species in the boreal and but you know they they burrow burrow underneath the snow and, and get out of that um get out of those cold temperatures and just rest, you know, um, while they're digesting. And then they have latrines, you know, they're very well organized in the sense that, they, you know, they have their kill site. They don't, they don't spend a lot of time right next to the kill site, which is probably, you know, there's wolves around and there's bears and, and they probably want to avoid those types of conflicts. And then, you know, they've got their, their resting area and then they've got their, um, you know, their latrines and these latrines are massive. I mean, you, and they're gold mines to a biologist, right? You, you can just take all that scat put it in a bag and and bring it home and um put it in the freezer and then analyze it for you know for what they're eating but um yeah they're really well organized in that sense and and they just you know once they're done with that they leave and and they're just hauling it across the landscape again until they find um you know another foraging site and in that process they're scent marking and and they're and they're trying to just say, hey, you know, this is my, if I'm a male, this is my 1,000 square kilometer range. If I'm a female, you know, this is my um, 300 square kilometer range. And, you know, those males have, you know, maybe two or three females within their range um, that they're breeding with. And, and their movements are, you know, I'm, I'm finding food, but I'm also making sure that those females are, are okay and that, um, you know, there's no other males that are coming in. But, I will say just one of them and I've and I've worked on hundreds of wolverines by this point and I will say it does there's nothing more exciting even today than walking up to a live trap and and you don't know you know the trap goes down um you get out to it you don't know what's in it and as you're walking up you just hear this deep just just it's just such a deep growl and you can hear it from you think it's like a plane flying overhead you don't that's kind of what it sounds like but it's just this deep um resonating growl just from the gut and um and then they kind of end it you know coming through the nose with like a and um it's just uh it's just an it's just a super exciting thing and and they sound kind of like you know kind of like a pig in there almost like (laughs) snorting and they are just so revved up i mean it's very true and um yeah, they 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 run uh, they run at a different level than a lot of other species for sure. So big wow. big home ranges. Yeah, um, you know, and home ranges is like it's not a super easy thing to calculate with a species, but you know, I, when you if you can get into your population and say you're working with fifty animals or something, eventually the residents kind of they they make themselves obvious, and and those residents are. Um, you know, going to have nine to 1200 square kilometer ranges that they move, you know, they can move around in a couple weeks. And then the female is more like, um, you know, 300 or so, two to 300. It, it really depends where you are. And I, and I think the quality of the habitat has a little bit to do with it. You know, here, you know, I, we have this really, WCS Canada, we have this really big telemetry study right now in, in Northwest Ontario. And we have about 50 animals that we're working with here. And, and, you know, those ranges are a little bit bigger than what I saw, you know, out West and, um, in the North, in Northern Alberta. 
Um, there's not as many Wolverines, you know, they're using more space, um, you know, um, so, so there is differences in range size throughout, you know, their range in North America and, 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 uh, the world, but they use a lot of space, uh, for sure. Hmm. And, and their strategy well, is, I guess to, it's one of their vulnerabilities move. as well, right? It is. Yeah. Fragmentation, yeah. but, mm. but, they, but they need to move and, and, and they need to, um, you know, moving, and always being on the go just, you know, increases their chance of finding something to eat. And, and starvation is a major, you know, a, a factor for wolverines as far as natural cause mortality. So they got to keep on the move, um, you know, to, to increase that likelihood of finding something. And if they can find something big like a like a moose or something, I, I remember working in um, working in Yellowstone. You know, one of the things, the hypotheses was that, you know, some of these some animals that get wounded during the hunting season that kind of go up into the mountains and maybe die in ravines or something that ended up being a fairly important source of food for the wolverines and um you know and and in in where i'm working in um ontario you know we get a lot of we think some of these are wounded moose that die and then the wolverines just if they can find one of those um you know, hunt, uh, wounded animals or winter kill or, or something, you know, you know, a wolf, a wolf kill is great, but those wolves do, I know it's not always true, but the wolves often do a very good job in cleaning up those carcasses. By the time the wolverine gets there, he's got some bone and marrow, which is great. But, um, if he can find a winter kill or, um, or he can, um, you know, find something that was hit by a car or something like that, you know, they'll spend weeks there and that can, you know, that can set up an animal for a whole winter or, you know, for mm. a very long period of time because of their ability to cache and all that kind of stuff. And um, not saying that they're not good at hunting, but, um, yeah, that ability to move and just find Well, they're not going to kill a moose, but to be gifted one would be a pretty big deal. <laughs> Save you a lot of... It's a lot of snowshoe hairs you got to... <laughs> yeah, I'm not kidding. There is evidence that they've killed for example, caribou, um, you know, and it's, it's kind of the long game with them, right? They, they chase and chase and chase, um, until they, um, until they, they get an opportunity. Um, and I, and I, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's, that's not the case with, um, moose as well, maybe calves or sick, you know, sick animals. Um, you know, I don't think they're going to be taking out a, a healthy, you know, bull or cow. Well, you get those conditions of the deep rain crusted snows and small predators. I mean, you know, bobcats will pull down deer, white tailed deer and mule deer and that's that's quite a size difference. So yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't put it past Wolverine being able to do that. So mm -hmm. do they do they really deserve like it they're sort of reputation as being like just these fearless ferocious things that would just come into a kill site and just you know be little tasmanian devils and just like chase the grizzly bear off chase the wolf pack off and take take whatever's there is that is is that founded now like is that real or was that kind of part of the mythology that w that was created for this for this animal I mean, I think there's elements of that that are true. I mean, that's got to okay. be a strategy of theirs, right? They, they, if they find that moose and 
um, they, if they're lucky enough to find that moose and there's a whole bunch of meat on that, they they should do whatever they can. I mean, it's it 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 could be a matter of life and death for a wolverine to 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 keep that moose at least long enough that it can grab some of it and go cache it a few hundred meters away in in some you know sphagnum or or something yeah. or, or piece of rock or something. So I think, I mean, from from an adaptive strategy, I think being be, as a, being a scavenger and being fierce just makes a lot of sense. Um, and so, um, you know, we we see them killed by predators, though. I mean, we we see them. You know, I think other wolverines are a big source of wolverine mortality for sure. But you know, wolves are a source of mortality, and and I think if a wolverine is on a carcass. Um, and say one wolf comes up, I don't doubt that a wolverine can stand its ground. Um, you know, even maybe two. I, I just don't. I'm not sure if a wolf would really. Um, you know, it depends. I guess what condition those wolves are in. But you know, um, I, I could see them. You know, and there's evidence that they will. You know, push those animals off. Grizzly yeah. bears. I mean. Yeah, grizzly bears are pretty big. <laughs> I think that's a big risk for a wolverine, but I mean, wolverines are very, you know, very agile and fast. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they would try to, you know, give the wolverine or give the. Do you remember that there was film footage from, oh man, it's got to be like over 20 years ago of a grizzly bear on like a deer carcass or something it was november december like bear was still out but there was snow on the ground and a wolverine came along and the you know the, the photographer was there or a camera was set up and sort of like captured the the scenario as it unfolded and, and if i recall right like the wolverine stayed back but it was just like put on a show of like taunting and growling and and just like teeth and just like and circling around and around and as big as what grizzly bears are i mean you guys know they're actually very private eaters like if they find something dead hit on the side of the road they like to go drag it off into some thick spot because they just don't like being being bothered the scavengers around and I just remember the grizzly bear. I don't know how, how long it took, but I think the grizzly bear just finally got like annoyed and it just started like tearing. And it's like it pulled a hind quarter or front shoulder or whatever off this deer and just said, screw it, I'm out of here. Yeah, and it, away it went with this <laughs> consolation prize. But it was just, it, the Wolverine kind of won just by by persistence of just annoying the grizzly bear with, you know, some some ferocity, even though it was smaller. And I think, I don't know what you think, but I think no predator really wants to, like, touch each other and tangle because it, <clears throat> you know, a wolverine bites a big wolf three times its size, and it's like, well, that could be fatal for the wolf. So they just kind of want to, you know, diplomatically get each other to leave sort of thing so well, that's sure. that's interesting i'm sure there's some sort of cost benefit they go through to to think about physiologically whether how important this is to me right but now. what you were what you were saying <laughs> about when they're in the trap like just the their their vocals 
Mm. That's got to be one of their strategies for their size is they got to, imagine that in the dark, you know, <laughs> if you're a big grizzly bear and that's just on the edge of the alders or something. And maybe you're just like, oh yeah, that's just one of them old wolverines. But you know, if you didn't know you're a, you know, bear that hadn't been around the block a few times, you might be like, holy hell. Makes what the hair on the back of your neck stand up for sure. <laughs> the wolverines well, do that prance, you know. I don't know if you've seen like a skunk do it too, where they, they put their front paws way down and then they, they lift their and their head down, they lift their tail up. and they're, Well, like they're, they're going to spray almost sort of. Yeah, and then they just yeah. kind of hop around in circles. And, and <laughs> I I, um, I know they do that with when there's other competitors at the carcass as, as kind of a sign of fitness probably and, and just aggression I, I think it's a sign of disrespect <laughs> it's like kiss my ass yeah. um so what about their distribution in canada um maybe give us a little bit of a well um so you know they're they're found throughout uh, i would say most of you know they're in they're in the the western rockies and the western mountainous regions you know i kind of think of them as having three kind of primary types of habitats in canada you know they have the mountain the alpine habitat montane boreal um where they you know they kind of like that um that subalpine zone um you know is pretty important to them not the not the top of the mountains not the bottom but somewhere in the middle um you know and they and then they're found in the arctic tundra um, you know, some, even some of those high Arctic islands and then out into where I am now, which is, um, you know, um, Eastern Canada, you know, where they've lost range, I'd say, um, you know, in Canada is, you know, they're not found in, for example, east of Ontario anymore. Um, you know, they're not in Quebec, Labrador, um, you know, they're, they're not really in the eastern parts of Ontario anymore, the far eastern parts. Um, they're, they're, getting, they're making their way back. Justina Ray at WCS Canada did all these aerial surveys to try to understand their, their distribution in Ontario through, through tracks in the snow and found, you know, their, their, their core is kind of north-central up to northwest Ontario. And then they kind of, as you move from that core, they, they south and east, they, they kind of start to peter out a little bit. Um, but um, you know they're well distributed through the boreal for forest of Manitoba and Saskatchewan, and um, and Alberta. You know as you move a little bit south in latitudes, say 52 degrees, and in Ontario and Manitoba or so, 53 degrees, they start to kind of go away. They do much better north. Um, you know their their distribution is much more abundant. As you move um, as you move west and say get into Alberta, you know below 56 maybe 55 degrees north latitude they kind of start to peter out north of there in that in that real boreal they do they there's quite a few of them and then and they're doing well and then um you know in, in the mountainous regions of western canada i i kind of think of their core as being you know that yukon northwest territory alaska um uh northern northwest corner of Northwest portions of um, Alberta and northern BC. That's really their core. You know, um, everything is wolverine habitat up there. You know, you don't have this discrepancy between high and low elevations. You know, as you move, as you move south into these montane habitats, you know, way up high, that's that's wolverine habitat, and then you move down, and you move out of wolverine habitat. But 
Um, mm. You know, yeah, they, they're a species of special concern in Canada. Um, and then, which basically just means they, because of their biological traits and some known threats, there's definitely the chance that they will be threatened at some point in the future. I mean, they're extremely low density, two to 15 per thousand square kilometers. They have um, very, very low realized natality. For example, um, you know, a, a female might only have two um, a surviving adult offspring, you know, her entire life, um, you know, that very low reproductive potential. So, you know, human disturbance has a big effect. Um, you know, what really kind of pushed them out of a lot of places was, was poisoning, um, for, you know, wolf control. And once that ended and, and there was more trapping regulations and more, like a trapping season, um, you know, that those two things helped Wolverines a lot and, and they recovered to, to some places. I mean, they're, there's still, you know, range loss, you know, there's the southern latitudes of the lowland boreal forest. Um, you know, I think that's where you're getting into some range loss. You know, it's this dynamic between climate and human disturbance. And um, it's a little bit murky exactly what's going on, but it's certainly there's some range loss for wolverines. And, and the same goes for, you know, some of these foothill regions of the, you know, of the Rocky Mountains. And, you know, from the contiguous U.S., you know, they're not in all the ranges, mountain ranges that they once were in, but, yeah. um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it, is there any populations or subpopulations in Canada that are federally listed as endangered or are they species of concern across the country? Species at a federal level, there are species of special concern, okay. I mean, like the Vancouver Island population. Um, you know, I, I think the last sighting there was like in, in the nineties, um, there, but at, from at a provincial level, there's different, um, assessments of those populations. So in Ontario, they are threatened species. So under Ontario endangered species act, they're, they're considered threatened species. So there's no commercial force or commercial force. There's no commercial fur harvest, um, of wolves right, okay. in Ontario. Yes. Yeah, British Columbia has no provincial endangered species. So everything is fine here <laughs> well the i guess in in bc there's just some regions have different rules than others but as far as yeah so when it comes to the fur harvesting um it's only been fairly recently where we live in southeastern bc in the south rockies kootenai region trapping has been closed for them um they're dealing with big coal mines, um, highways coming through the Rocky Mountains out of Alberta that have become like movement barriers for like between um, like crown of the continent stuff down into the flathead area of Montana and Glacier Park and stuff. The, those movement, um, from what I understand, has been kind of disrupted because of the, the highway and stuff. And so... Um, yeah, they, they've been closed, but like you were saying, you get into Northern BC or, you know, up towards the Yukon border and stuff. Um, I've probably never seen as many Wolverines in my life as when I was working up there. Like they'd literally like run across the road in front of you when you were driving and run up a tree. And then I remember going over and it's like, 
you know, it's just 10 feet up in the tree. They're, you know, staring down at you like a big squirrel. And then you drive down the road like five kilometers and walk in somewhere and there's fresh tracks and peeing on a tree. And it's like, well, it's probably not the same Wolverine. And then you go somewhere else and one goes running by chasing a rabbit. And I was just like, holy smokes. You know, down here in the South Rockies, it might see like maybe lucky to see a wolverine, like unless you're doing a lot of goat hunting, you know. Yeah, and you got real differences in habitat and, there, right? I mean, um, yeah, you know, it's very, um, you know, in the South Rockies into the U.S., it's very um, patchy and um, you know isolated and patchy, and like you mentioned, the the highway there, you know, being a dispersal to or, uh, you know, clearing or dispersal, particularly for females. And, and then, but when you get into the north, it's just everything is, everything is wolverine habitat. And it's just <laughs> very, it's very good wolverine habitat. <laughs> and um, it's just the land of weasels, you know, They're, they just do so well. And, um, it, you know, yeah, because the fisher population is fairly robust in yeah. the Alberta Plateau region of BC and Alberta as well. Mm-hmm. And, not so much down in the interior yeah no I, you know anywhere up there like as soon as you get off in the bush and start plowing around there it's like it's thick it's hard to get around in the boreal forest and there's snowshoe hare habitat and snowshoe hares everywhere so yeah like you were saying well you're a weasel or a cat same thing the lynx are lynx are such a different situation up in the northern northern region i know i know working uh, down in like in um the U- u.s rocky mountains lynx was such a rarity um and just this mysterious species that was elusive and and man in the board in the northern boreal they are a dime a dozen you know, <laughs> I know. and i uh, saw five in five one day five just, in one day three yeah. in one group it was just like you know they walk down the snowmobile trail and they'd be like, are you going to move or do I have to actually walk around? You kind of, kind of thing. But I always think about um, like trappers reading those accounts of, you know, the, how elusive links are and just kind of laughing a little bit. Right. And they're just like, well, you guys, you guys <laughs> yeah. have never actually talked to us. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I remember going into Northwest Alberta and yeah, seeing Wolverines on a regular basis, running down forestry roads and running yeah. down oil and gas roads. And, um, you know, and I do think sometimes those big snow berms kind of, kind of, um, you know, kind of, uh, keep them in those roads longer than they probably want to be. Um, but, um, yeah. So uh, when up, up there were, so the density of Wolverines is higher, like in a given and everywhere is Wolverine habitat. Are they less territorial like if if life is good and resources are good and you don't struggle to find food um are they as concerned say like is a big male as concerned about other males in his proximity say than if he was in the southern rockies where life is is pretty tough or do they just hate each other no matter where they I are? Mean, I mean, I, I keep thinking of this video that came out with those wolverines. I believe it was in Russia, and there was an oil and gas camp or some sort of exploration camp. And I think they had a, you know, that maybe there's a cook kitchen or garbage or something like that. And there was just tons of wolverines. I don't know if that was a um, 
computer generated thing, but it sure didn't look. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, it caused a big stir on Twitter. Um, yeah, and I mean that speaks to your your idea. I guess one what I see is you know yes, food is a, a source of competition, but I females are also a, a major source of competition and. You know, I don't know how long these males are actually capable of holding on to these ranges. We see males come and go very, very often relative to females. And I, and I think they are in a battle for their lives constantly to keep these territories and to keep access to those females for the summer mm. to breed. And so I think, um, you know, I think they are, um, regardless of food, they are just in a battle all the time um to to make sure that they have uh, an access to they're they're able to mate um and they might only get one shot at it you know or, or two shots at it you know two two summers or something um before somebody else comes in there and i always feel real bad when i when i open up a live trap and i see this old wolverine with just like uh, missing half of its head you know or missing eyes and all sorts of scars on it you know that that Wolverine, you just kind of, you know, you don't treat your elders that way, right? And um, it's just not true in Wolverine world, right? Like they, if you're not up for it and somebody wants your territory, um, they're going to displace you w whatever way they can. And, um, and it, as fast know, as they can, yeah. as fast as they can. We had this Wolverine in Alberta we called Brutus and he was missing almost the entire top of his head. It was one of the... It was pretty disgusting, uh, actually, when we looked into that live trap and saw him. And, um, you know, w one of the wolverines, they they kind of like, they have incredibly strong jaws, right? That's another one of those adapt adaptations for living in the north. They have like, you know, a large um, zygomatic arch that allows them to attach like all this muscle to their jaw, to their, to their, um, to their head. And they can just grip anything super strongly and... And if you see young wolverines playing, they they will often. Um, and I've worked with Andrew Mansky quite a bit, and he has he has a lot of footage of um, of this kind of barrel rolling. They, uh, you know, two wolverines will grab a, a another wolverine. A wolverine will grab a wolverine by the top of the head and kind of like twist. And oh, um, like a crocodile. Yeah, like sort a crocodile. A death roll. roll. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, they. We see those now. That's that's playing, but we see those exact types of scars when we when we see young males show up at traps, live traps, or and there those scar. There's always scarring on the top of the head. Not not always, but if there is scarring, it's it's often on the top of the head, because I think they're just they're constantly in these these little battles, and um, you know some yeah. of those young males might might be in more of a battle of like. Hey, dad wants me to leave, right? It's getting towards this time and he's kind of, you know, or, or, you know, it's getting towards a time when I need to disperse and he's trying to send me a signal. And then as, as, as they get a little bit older, I think those battles become real. And, um, hmm. but. that's, that's, huh, that's interesting. Yeah. The barrel rolls. Well, that leads us into our safety tip of the podcast if you are out in the wilderness and you're attacked by a wolverine and it bites you on the head remember stop drop and roll <laughs> otherwise you'll twist your head off <laughs> just roll roll with them yep that's that's the counter strategy <laughs> 
man, yeah, that must be, must be a vicious, vicious life, which, which is bizarre for an animal that's like probably doesn't see a lot of other wolverines, you know, over the course of a day. But, um, when they do, it's, if it's not a female, it's probably a pretty nasty encounter. So unless someone just like, like up and runs, um, I mean, we do see some evidence that they're more social. I, I do think they have a, you know, a reputation as a bit of a loner, but there is like we, and this was not something I ever expected, but in Alberta, and I will say, interestingly, in Alberta, we had, we had a lot of the live traps, more than one Wolverine would show up. Um, and it was often mm. a father and an offspring or a mother and an offspring and say, say the father goes out and kills a beaver at a pond, you know, and you set up a camera there, um, you know, its offspring will show up there, you know, a few days later and forage in that site, you know, clean up some of the scraps and then the female will come in. So they're not loners completely. They're, they're, they're raised, you know, they're, they're moving around together and they're, you know, I'm sure that the offspring are learning and in, in, in their own special Wolverine way, you know, the, the adults are teaching. Um, so, um, so in, in that sense, I think they do interact, but in, yeah, when, when, when someone shows up in your range, that's not, um, you know, not from your, from your family group, that's when the things happen. And, and, you know, I think that's why we notice a lot of these, a lot of this scarring and, you know, Wolverine's missing eyes. And we notice a lot of that in the spring. And that's, you know, that's when, you know, these young males are forced to disperse either through social pressure and hormones. They leave and now they're in all this new territory and they, they're going through, they're just in, a, in the right type of place. They're constantly going in good habitat. They're constantly going through occupied habitat. And, um, you know, they're just dodging bullets and, and trying to find, you know, trying to find a female to breed with. Um, but, um, you know, what, one of the no interesting things is, you know, we see a lot of, um, you know, two wolverines showing up at a, at a live trap or a camera station in, in northwest Alberta. And in Ontario, I, I, actually, I don't believe it's happened. It actually hasn't happened yet. And we've been there for five years. And, um, you know, I just think that speaks to, the density of the population, um, you know, and some of these might be density dependent effects, right? Like you have, um, you know, more fighting and more mortality when, when there's more, when there's a more dense population and, and there's maybe not that extreme level of competition in a place like, um, in a place like Ontario, but, um, hmm. you know, the, the scarring is a little bit less prevalent and, and the, and the, and the amount of, you know, multiple Wolverines showing up at the traps is less prevalent, but. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. What a, uh, what a world that probably not that long ago that it was probably a lot of just mythology from trappers that kind of like formulated the picture of what Wolverines were and their biology and behavior and what, what they need to survive. And, um, you know, not the easiest animal to study, but so, Tell us some of the key research that you're working on, uh, Wolverines, where, um, you know, some 
stuff maybe that's recently been completed and kind of like what what are the key things that you're studying what are the questions you're asking what what where is that leading um policy and land management decisions and stuff yeah I, you know i think um one of the things about the mountains is in a lot of respects there's this spatial separation between um, where there's a lot of human disturbance, industrial infrastructure, and where wolverines are. I mean, they are more often than not, you know, up in that subalpine, those high elevations. I mean, there's some forestry, there's some oil and gas in those places, but not as much as there is, you know, much lower in elevation, um, you know, down in the foothills or the, you know, the southern, even, you know, that, that applies to the mountains. Same thing when you get into the lowland boreal forest. Lots of human disturbance in that southern tier. Lots of commercial forestry, mining, oil and gas. As you move into the north, much fewer, um, a much smaller human footprint. I think you know that the the this question of if you go into core wolverine habitat with a lot of human development, how do wolverines do? I don't think that question was clearly, um, you know, looked at. Um, before some of the work that I did and, and, um, you know, I worked, I did not do this by myself. Obviously I worked with a lot of partners The the work in Alberta, you know, that was with the Alberta Trappers Association, the Alberta Conservation Association. And I was at, you know, at the university of Alberta here in, um, Ontario, we're working, um, you know, WCS Canada works really closely with the government of Ontario and, you know, some of the forestry companies in the area and, and local trappers, but in, you know, in Northwest, Ontario, you, you had this picture of a wolverine population in an area with extensive human development. I mean, that was one of the earliest oil fields. Rainbow Lake, Northwest Alberta, was one of the earliest oil fields developed in Alberta. And um, you just have the amount of seismic was is just incredible on that landscape. And um, oil and gas wells, like... It, you don't walk through the bush very long in that in that corner of the world without running into a piece of metal somehow, right? Or a clearing, or a tank, or a pit, you know. And um, and and there is just a massive, massive human footprint in that area. Um, and but there's a pretty big wolverine population there. And I and I think that idea wasn't super, you know, this idea that wolverines were a wilderness species, you know, was has always been out there that if there's human development and human activity, you're not going to find wolverines. Um, you know, they're relegated to these wild places. They just have no tolerance. They have no resilience to human disturbance. I think that study in, you know, in, in Northwest Alberta kind of you know, took a little, took a closer look at that. And, um, you know, they, there was a very large wolverine population, a pretty healthy wolverine population. Most of those territories were occupied by the females. It, it was an even distribution of male to female. Um, you know, most of those um, ranges were occupied and, and they had massive amounts of development within their range. So, you know, they were able to live with that industrial infrastructure and survive. So I, so I think there's like, it kind of brings this idea of, you know, you have these human disturbances that have these non-lethal effects that are, in in some respects, somewhat muted in the core of a wolverine's range. You, know, you have, 
you have some habitat loss from roads. You have some little habitat loss potentially from seismic lines and pipelines. But it's, you know, the development up there is not so extensive that it just completely um, kicks wolverines out. You know, it's it's a low enough density that wolverines can live with it. Um, you know, the, the bigger concern in a system like that is um, is probably going to be human-caused mortality. And... And so, yes, you know, this, this massive footprint by itself really is, doesn't have a huge effect on the wolverines. Human use of that footprint does. And, you know, maybe a quarter of that wolverine population that I was working with in, in northwest Alberta was, was either, is either hit by cars or harvested by trappers. So human cause mortality is a big source of mort- is a big um, is a big factor up there and, and human development plays a big role in that. I mean, it, it fragments wolverine habitats and gives humans, you know, really good access to where, um, to where wolverines live. The, the, but the important, the other side of that is, you know, if you had, you know, a, a road network and pipelines and seismic lines, and there was really no human activity there and no human caused mortality, you'd probably have a pretty resilient and okay wolverine population so it's just this difference between um you know human caused mortality and um you know the, some of these non-lethal effects of these disturbances which at the levels that they are it's it's not that it's not that detrimental at this point um to wolverines the, these non-lethal disturbances I, the same kind of thing was was in ontario so that was a gps collaring project for about four years and then when i finished that i, I came in um, and I worked in Ontario and, um, the difference here is that it's, you know, it's Ontario is very much the edge of, um, Wolverine distribution. So we have some edge effects here. We have, we have much more, um, we have, you know, we're working with, um, many more males. There's 31 males here that we're tracking right now. And there's only 14 females that, that two to, um, you know, two males to, or three males to one ratio has been around for a really long time, but it, within this study, but I think one of the, the same kind of pattern is showing up in Ontario that we saw in Alberta. You know, there's this massive human footprint in Northwest Ontario from commercial forestry and the Wolverines are surviving and they're doing fine in some sense with this, with this footprint, they're not being displaced. There's cup locks all over their ranges. There's forestry all over their ranges. And they're in some respects using this disturbance, right. To their advantage. Mm. I mean, Wolverines in Alberta were, you know, selecting sometimes for seismic lines, which, which we, and, and, and we also did these foraging site visits and we'd see that they were, um, you know, killing snowshoe and grouse along these seismic lines and on the edges of cup locks, borrow pits, were loaded with beavers in Northwest Ontario. Um, and the Wolverines, you know, they selected for these borrow pits. We actually sat, we, we, we visited a Wolverine who was denning in the berm of a borrow pit. You know, those borrow pits are increasing the density of, you know, the amount of beavers on that landscape, having some positive effects, you know, and in, interesting in Northwest Alberta too, there were Wolverines denning in, you know, having reproductive dens and, in uh, slash piles and in log decks, we're, we're seeing the same thing in Ontario. Wolverines using these human uh, these these structures created by commercial forestry as reproductive dens, um, and they're living with all this forestry. But the, the the thing that's the kicker is yes, this this footprint would be the the effect would be somewhat muted um, 
if if it was just the footprint and it didn't have this human use of the footprint because this footprint just increases you know human access into these habitats and um you know really increases human cause mortality and and this is you know my work and is not the first to say this i mean tons of researchers have pointed to this idea that um human cause mortality you know in areas that are developed um by um by oil and gas or forestry you know is a major source of wolverine mortality and you know often at a local scale causes you know wolverine populations to decline so so human cause mortality that's got to be vehicles vehicles yeah busy roads trapping and hunting it has got to be the main the main sources right yeah i mean we also get wolves using these roads i mean this is not human cause but it's you know humans are creating these roads wolves are using these roads we sometimes get um wolverines killed um you know well, by and, wolves and i think i was mentioning before the show about a uh, recent study that came out showing the competition between coyotes and wolverines because they're using roads and seismic lines and and sort of mixing and mingling more in in um uh wolverine habitat and and so they're sort of saying like that's a human caused impact that the human disturbance has allowed coyotes to move into yes. places they they didn't really thrive before so that would be a source of human cause and so you're saying wolves would be the same same way so that's like a little bit affecting like, the caribou that way so mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. that was jillian chow fraser like that group mm, that's right yep uh, yep Nikki heim and um um jason fisher they've put out you know a bunch of research kind of documenting that increase in mesocarnivore abundance in these disturbed areas um you know that's that's contributing to increased competition for wolverines for limited food resources um so that's kind of like this interference competition kind of and and um for wolverines you know it, with wolves it's 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 mostly the you know this idea that they're they're a source of direct mortality whereas i guess that is more um, you know, increased competition for food resources, but but the, you know the the there's also a synergy with climate change for for those studies, right? And and you're getting this industrial development at the same time you're getting warmer climates, more climates that are you know more suitable for lower species that used to be lower in elevation. So you're getting this upslope movement of mesocarnivores and um, you know into Wolverine Range. That's that's um, that's increasing competition for wolverines and i and i think that's a that's a general pattern we're going to start to see across wolverine range either you know absolute movement of mesocarnivore and uh, predator populations but also you know as you're looking at the boreal you know northern shifts um you know there's quite a bit of work in in alberta looking at how you know deer populations are moving north into northern latitudes because of industrial development combined with you know climate change. You have all this early seral vegetation. You have less um, severe winters. You have um, you know deer moving, white-tailed deer moving north. In some respects, yes, this is great. You know we've got more food for wolverines to eat, but on the other, the other aspect, it's more competition and it's more um, sources of mortality. And 
it's kind of like death by a thousand cuts, right? Like you, like you just keep nipping away at this population. You have human caused mortality from all these different ways. You have climate change, which might be reducing, you know, their ability to have good, you know, reproductive dens and physiologically might stress them. And then you've also got these elevated predator populations and, um, you know, and a lot of these are kind of, you know, it's referred to as cumulative effects, but you know, those cumulative effects are, are happening very strongly at the range edge. And, and, and we see that in a place like, um, you know, Northwest Ontario and Red Lake, you know, those kind of cumulative effects, um, weren't seen in a place like, um, you know, climate change wasn't a big factor, I don't believe, in, in Northwest Alberta at this point, right? There's no, there's not much of a synergy between industrial development and, and ungulate populations um, with climate change. With, with industrial hmm. development, there is, but with, uh, with climate change, not as much. But. No, that, um, that makes... That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean the 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 ripple effect from from you know the the changing temperatures and yeah rearrangement of species and even things like you know the the timber lines changing and alpine habitat is shrinking and you know all all those sorts of things might be slow, um, but. But yeah, I can see that having a big impact on, on, on the wolverine. You're turning a low productivity niche. You know, you're turning it, 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 that that wolverines are adapted to. You know, and you're you're turning it a little bit more. You're making it a little bit more productive. And so they they remind me a lot of caribou, because yeah. a lot of the things you're saying about the wolverine is what we've learned about caribou so caribou have kind of like occupied the same the same sort of low productivity environments but like biologically they're very good at extracting the nutrients they need out of these low productivity environments so that separated them from moose and uh, if they were separated from moose they didn't really have to deal with wolves a lot in their evolution uh, their, their strongholds are Alaska, Yukon, you know, like the northern uh, circumpolar region and, you know, the, the linear disturbances and, you know, the changes, climate change. Like the, the story seems very much of the Wolverine seems very much tied to the story of the caribou. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of evidence, too, of, um, you know, caribou calves being an important you know, source of, of food for wolverines. Not a oh, huge source imagine, of food, yeah. Same I mean, size as a wolverine. <laughs> yeah. There's there's no landscape, you know, throughout on Ontario, throughout Boreal and Montane and the north, there, there's really no landscape level management for wolverines. They they don't often, you know, caribou, are, we, we, we just know so much more about caribou. We know the status of those populations. We know that there has to be landscape level management for them. You know, with wolverines, we, we kind of under the assumption that they're doing okay. And, and, and that's from trapper harvest data, um, you know, and looking at trends over time, but we don't really know that. I mean, we haven't dug into, um, you know, in, in, into survival and fitness metrics and a bunch of areas throughout Wolverine range and tried to get a, you know, like we have with caribou and tried to get a good I- idea of the trajectories of, of populations. We haven't really done that with Wolverines, but 
you know, and I don't know if we're ever, ever are, it's, it's going to be so difficult and expensive. Wolverines are so incredibly difficult to study. And, and I think if you look in a place like Ontario, one of the strategies is, is, and the ideas is that landscape level management for caribou is going to help biodiversity in general, but particularly a species like wolverine that needs to be managed at that wide a scale. And so protected areas and roadless areas and, and maintaining low productivity landscapes, like those are all parts of, of landscape level caribou management that are also going to help wolverine. So, so in some respects, you know, if you really wanna, if we wanna push, you know, the, the best way to push landscape level management and habitat management for wolverines is probably to have them piggyback, uh, piggyback with caribou, um, right. in the short mm-hmm. term. Um, but it, 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 you'd have to significantly probably up the game in Canada and the science on wolverines so that they're more in step with caribou conservation because there's a lot of research on a lot of research on wolves too that could probably be better spent on wolverines. I I imagine so. And monitoring. Huh. I, I, I think, um, yes, I think we need representative, just like we did with caribou herds throughout the boreal and, and the mountains and the Arctic tundra. You know, we had all these very intensive studies. We still have them looking at fitness metrics of these, of these populations across gradients of disturbance and climate and environments. Um, you know, that's going to, that would be great if we could do that, you know, for wolverines as well in, in the boreal and in the mountains and in the Arctic tundra. And, and maybe over time we'll, we'll get closer to that, especially as technology changes for wolverines. And, and maybe we, um, we have a better way to monitor those fitness level metrics for wolverines. But, you know, one thing we kind of have to do a better job of is, is just simple monitoring of the status of populations that's repeatable over time. And, you know, in the contiguous U.S., you know, they, they're, they've started this effort of setting up these camera traps um, every five years or so to, to get an idea of wolverine occupancy and, you know, different things like, like sex ratios. Um, you know, this, this should be repeated every five years. That, that kind of research is actually, um, you know, and some of that stuff has shown um, wolverines are increasing in distribution in the mountains. They're actually recolonizing some of their ranges. You know, there's very good efforts um, Andrea Curcello and um, Garth Moad and Miriam Baruta and um, Nikki Heim, that whole research group in the Rockies, like around where you are and, and, and further north, they have intensive, um, you know, monitoring programs with, um, with camera traps and, and DNA and hair snares. That is great. And, and hopefully those stay going and that they're repeatable over time. Um, but, but throughout a, those mountains just receive so much attention, um, you know, for, for good reasons in some respects. I mean, there, there are kind of enhanced um, conservation concerns for those mountains, mostly because of how, how um, fragmented those habitats are and, and low density of those populations and, and somewhat less resilient. But there, there's very little effort to, to monitor populations you know, further north in the lowland boreal forest in the mountains, you know, the northern parts of the mountains in the Yukon and, and up into the Arctic tundra. We really know nothing about those populations. We assume they're okay based on trapper harvest data, but um, 
we, we need to do a better job of monitoring and, and that's working with local First Nations communities and, and working with trappers and, um, and governments to try to, you know, every five years, let's go out and set up this camera trap array and, and let's keep repeating that over time and, and involve the community and, and just get an idea of, of what is the status of our, you know, for harvest records are great, but they have a lot of holes in them. And, um, we just gotta yeah, be careful especially about. if you get, you know, if you're not able to like sex and age the harvest data, then it's just like, it's a Wolverine where you might be interested in like, great, but how many of those were breeding females versus juvenile males and, you know, to, to look at that composition of the take, because I'm sure as a conservation scientist, you would say in a particular region, it's like, hey, the trappers are taking, you know, 60% of their wolverine take in this big landscape is sub-adult males. Maybe you're not quite concerned, um, but if it was like a high proportion of breeding females, then, you know, that's, that's a hard thing from a wolverine population to recover from, so... And I, I, and I, I think I there are that yeah, being like a Kuka and um, some of those in the Yukon, like they've they've done efforts to kind of dissect that trapper harvest. They have very good carcass collection programs. That certainly helps. You know, adult females end up being very low. You know, five to fifteen percent of the take, and like you're saying, the the adults, um, you know, are much higher in intake uh, or the um the subadult males are much higher intake yeah um i mean that's one of the things i i i'm learning more about trapping and trappers and trapper ethics is just how in tune they are with their fur bearer populations and the dynamics from year mm -hmm. to year and how conscious they are of this female take you know uh and and you don't see that in hunting. It's just like, what's the hunting regulations? I go into an area and it's just sort of like, oh, there's no buck here. I'm going to go over to this other zone. A trapper's like, well, I can't do that because this is my zone. Um, I have to make sure that it can yield like a reasonable amount of fur consistently over the years. So they literally are managing. And I'm finding this ethic of, you know, a trapper might be like, you know, I think I could probably safely take three wolverines off my line this year. And he goes out on the 1st of December and bang, catches an adult female. He's just like, I'm done. Like, I'm calling it quit. I will not target wolverines for the rest of the winter because that was not, that's not, not good. Trapper I work with. He only traps Martin every second year. He's just like, I can't do this every year. He just knows his Martin population. And and um, I got a lot of respect for for that um, sort of approach to the landscape. And, you know, I think trappers would want to take one or two, but they'll limit themselves based on that, that female take, which is, uh, like I said, I, you don't see that really in hunting. It's just follow the regulations and you expect the outcome to be good, but trappers, it's kind of like, well, it's kind of up to you. So. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I know it's, um, taking, I, I do think it's hard in some respects to, you know, to, to target non-females, um, you know, just to target males and sub-adults. 
um, as a trapper. Um, but um, yeah, that is an important, I mean, keeping these females, um, you know, in the population, like, like I'd said earlier, like they might only have two, um, you know, two adult, two female, they might only produce two uh, female kits that survive into adulthood. So they are critically important members of these populations. I mean, mm -hmm. um, to keep, keep alive. And, and I see the same thing with, with trappers and, you know, with Martin, for example, you were saying, you know, they're very in tune and, and the second they, you know, start catching these, um, they, the, the female Martin, they, they shut down all their traps and, um, you know, they, they understand the cycles of, of how the, the Martin are doing, how the lynx are doing. And, and, and they, you know, they, um, are tuned to that and they, they are stewards of their, you know, of their trap lines for sure. And, and that's where I see a really neat opportunity of using trapping for conservation is this situation you're talking about with climate change and human induced alteration to the landscape, increasing the competition of small carnivores within, you know, the, um, the, the world of the Wolverine is then that's something where if you've got a population of Wolverines where you're saying, Hey, we're picking up a signal that man, these Wolverines are, you know, being swarmed by coyotes or the lynx population is through the roof for whatever reason. Um, that's a good relationship with trappers because they're going to go in there at no cost and say, you know, you might say like, man, try to, you know, get 300 coyotes out of this, this, this line, this winter. Right. And, and that's where I see that's the tool, but then we need the monitoring, like you were saying, which really isn't there for someone like you to say, we're actually seeing it's helping. It's not, you know, you know, whatever, but, um, yeah, I guess it's also, it's also, there's two issues, you know, there, one is that's, we, we got to address the base root issue, right? Which is either climate change, which is both climate change and land use. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and you don't want to just, I guess you don't want to keep putting band-aids on band-aids do buy you time to deal with these issues. Right. And it gives, it buys you time to, yeah. Um, yeah, to help no, I, these populations. I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, especially in the South Rockies here, like, you know, I mean, we're, we're Curtis is living over in the Elk Valley. I mean, it's massive coal mines. Right. And, that's probably a footprint on the landscape where that probably has had probably a pretty significant impact on wolverines in the upper elk valley and the in the fording and stuff right because mm -hmm. it's i mean they call some they don't call some of those places up there mordor for no reason right like it's as far as you can see in the valleys right so it's like that's that's a pretty probably a pretty good chunk of you know a few wolverines territory mm -hmm. that's not not productive so yeah and and different footprints right, have different effects I, I guess the other thing we need to be careful with it with is 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 incidental harvest and um and just um you know trying we do see you know if if, if a trapper does target you know the mesocarnivores that might compete with wolverines we, we do see wolverines you know getting their their paws stuck in in martin um you know in martin sets 
and not being able to release themselves very easily. Um, yeah. you know, that is a source of mortality for them. And, you know, wolf snares are a source of, you know, they're, they're, you know, quite a few wolverines are killed in Ontario, even though there's no commercial harvest. And that's, you know, that's through that incidental harvest. But so I, 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 I will yeah, just ahead. go back go quickly to this. I, I did talk about how, you know, localized populations of wolverines often don't do very well. You know, their lambdas, their growth rates are below one in these in these fragmented places, particularly near population centers. Um, you know, Pia Cuckoo did some work up in the Yukon and, you know, fragmented areas near Whitehorse, you know, had much different levels of harvest than, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. And, and you know, and, and that's true. Population centers and, um, you know, definitely affect the trapping in, in those areas and, and, and really increase it. You know, at, at a very large scale throughout much of Wolverine range, you know, there's there are areas that are heavily trapped, but there's also massive areas that are untrapped. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the dynamics have worked, you know, for, for quite some time in the sense that, um, you know, you have, you know, def- you have this refugia for wolverines that, you know, not, isn't hundred, it's not by design, but it, it's, it's a, it's an artifact of, of just where wolverine, where human populations are and where there's access. And so at very large scales, you know, that's probably why you're seeing harvest data, you know, indicate at at the national scale, you know, that it's at relatively stable, right. It, and that wolverine populations are relatively stable and wolverine harvest is stable because of this, um, this matrix of trapped and untrapped areas, you know, that might just be remote areas that don't have road access and are far from a town, but it also might be, um, you know, a big protected area. In Ontario, we have Wabakimi, you know, in, in the Rockies, you have Banff and um, Yoho or Jasper. In Alberta, you have um, Woodland Caribou or something like that. that. That helps, but, you know, even throughout the rest of northern Alberta, where there is trapping, you know, ubiquitous trapping and registered trap lines, there's there's lots of trap lines that are unused and really don't report harvest. And um, so at a, at a much larger scale, trapping becomes sustainable, particularly in continuous habitats in the north. Um, and okay. we, we think that's relatively true. Again, monitoring, we need better monitoring overall, but... It, it, that kind of idea kind of peters out as you move into fragmented habitat in the mountains. So, so describe from a wolverine's perspective, what would be fragmented habitat? So earlier we were talking about like they're doing well in these heavy, heavily logged areas, the seismic lines and oil and gas. Like there's obviously in those landscapes with those industrial footprints there's still enough habitat matrix that's growing snowshoe hares and moose are dying that keeps the wolverine population going so it's not just like tree removal or forest removal so what would what would fragment wolverine habitat to create these like, and I think you were getting at like a local population, meaning like a population that's sort of like isolated, like kind yeah. of cut off from, from the, the, the larger landscape. Um, I see what you mean. And yeah. Towns, highways, like is, what? Yeah. 
seismic line is not going to fragment a population, you know, a, a pipeline the same, you know, maybe it, when I, when I guess I'm talking about fragmentation, I'm talking about, um, you know, you have these isolated mountain ranges that, it, that, that Wolverines exist in. And, and between those ice mountain ranges are low elevation habitats, low elevation areas that aren't really Wolverine habitat, you know, Wolverine habitat in the contiguous U.S. and up into your neck of the woods is often described as areas with snow that lasts late into the spring. And if you look at a map of where that late spring snow is is located, you know, it's very patchy on the landscape. And so that's that's fragmentation at a very large scale, right? Okay. And it's, it's kind of islands, islands of Wolverine habitat. You know, the boreal, you know, you're not going to find that level of fragmentation, that very coarse fragmentation. Um, you know, you might have a big river or a big lake or something like that, but, um, you know, th those freeze still. And, but I mean, yeah, the, the level of fragmentation in the boreal and Northern Wolverine habitat is generally much less because everything is Wolverine habitat in, in this, in, in the Southern part of the range, it, it becomes very, it becomes much more discontinuous. And right. so because you have these small, isolated populations, they're very sensitive to mortality, you know, above yeah. natural mortality. And, and I, mm. I really think that's, that's the story where we live in the South Rockies of British Columbia is, um, you know, valley bottoms, towns, resorts, ski hills, coal mines, um, highways that that cut through the Rockies and sort of that east west. So Crow's Nest Highway one through where Curtis is, and then you go up and like the national parks got them up through the you know, the Rogers Pass and stuff. And so increasing traffic, tourist traffic, truck major trucking routes. We know from the Bow Valley that, you know, the highways have become so busy that they become almost like a fence to grizzly bears. And I'm sure that's probably what's happening with wolverines as much as there's just so much railroad tracks. Like they either decide not to cross them or if they do, every second one gets, you know, hit or run over. So yeah, valley bottoms, even if they're, a wolverine's going to cross from the subalpine through a valley, he's got to go through a town and agriculture areas and it's not necessarily that they won't cross, though, right? It's it's they probably will the cross. The risk of dying while they're the risk of mortality is through the roof, yeah. right? And yeah. so yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then this other question is like, as you're getting this expanding wolverine population, and 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 you're now having, you know, now it's not six wolverines in a mountain range; it's it's just two, and they're yeah. trying to get themselves established and and start a population, and then then leapfrog to a new mountain range or something like that. And yeah, that's where, you know. again, you know, human caused mortality is going to be a factor. And, um, and that's, you know, um, that's where conservation, you know, measures are pretty important. But so, so coming back to the snow thing, you talked about that being critical. Uh, I had also read years ago, like the deep snow packs are very important for the natal and prenatal dens of the females like they select a location under like a big windfall tree or whatever and then they'll they'll tunnel down to these things like through 20 feet of snow um give birth and then they 
I think they move move them not long long after that to to another den that they're going to rear them a, a little bit longer. So it sounds like is it is it true that like deep snow is an important part um, from that natal and prenatal habitat? Yeah, um, I think um, so. If you look at um, this paper by Jeff Copeland, which is 2010, I believe. And he just shows this, him and the other, other authors show this very good correlation between spring snow, um, mm. snow that lasts late into the spring and where all the reproductive dens have ever been found, um, actually throughout the world. And that correlation is very tight, particularly in the mountains. And it kind of fades away a little bit as you move into the boreal and there's various, I think there's various reasons for that, but it, it, spring snow and, and snow in general provides a very important component of, of wolverine den structures. And, and like you're saying, one hmm. component of that, there's, there's usually an earth structure involved and it's either some scree or, uh, or rock, you know, in the mountains, for example, with a whole bunch of snow over the top of it that provides insulation. I mean, these kits are born... Um, with no very little hair and and very tiny and so they need good insulation within those dens and and that snow and, and then that, that earth structure on top of that provides a lot of that um, you know provides a lot of that um, insulation and protection um, you know where where I was working in Northwest Alberta you know they didn't necessarily use rock structures they were actually we had wolverines denning in beaver lodges. We had wolverines denning. Oftentimes, we actually had squirrel middens, and we had um, hmm. we had um, moss-covered tree roots. So there's always that earth structure, and then um, and then that snow provides just a little bit extra. And I know this year in Ontario we have so much snow, and in my field site you hop off your sled, and snow is up to your <laughs> chest. It's crazy. And that is just great for wolverine reproductive dens. Um, you know, it's it's that's what they want. And as long as, you know, the climate stays good throughout the rest of this winter, you know, that snow should last all the way to the, about the time that these kits are weaned, which is sometime in May. So, so those kits are afforded that protection and structure all the way through their reproductive period and, until the point where mom is just you know, taking them out of the den and, and um, leaving them at rendezvous sites and bringing food back to them. So there, there are places where, where, you know, I think snow plays less of a of role. And I, and I think the boreal's one of those in the sense that there, there's a lot of available structures in the lowland boreal forest, beaver lodges. Um, I mean, I mentioned slash piles and log decks, but, you know, before humans, root, root balls, down trees, um, rock cracks, you know, on the, in the shield here in Ontario, very good habitats provided by moraines, you know, and I, in Alberta, that, that wasn't the case, um, you know, it was very wet and, and swampy. And, and so root balls were a really important, um, you know, structure. Um, and, you know, they, they wouldn't have, a lot of those dens would have no snow on them by about, uh, the beginning of April you know, that's very different than what you see in the mountains where the snow lasts late into the year. So it, it, you know, much later into that denning period. So it shows some behavioral plasticity, some resilience, you know, to having, to using, um, structures that don't need a whole bunch of snow. But at the end of the day, I think snow is a really important component of wolverine dens, especially if, for example, in the Arctic tundra, 
where um, you know I think snow makes a, a majority of the of the structure for these for these wolverine dens. I, it's kind of a if you look at the Arctic tundra probably being the most important. Snow plays a critical role in, in dens there. As you move to the mountains, that's probably like it's kind of in second. You know, it's snow's really important there, but but um, they have all that rock feature and and uh, avalanche debris and, and stuff like that that they can put dens in. And then probably in third place is the you know the boreal forest where you know there's a lot of available structures and evidence that they're they're using structures for denning even when there is no snow. Um, so. Um, but yeah, the loss of that snow, which is projected in a lot of models, um, you know, is, is, is a concern, the loss of snow, but also the loss of the, the reduction in the quality of snow and the earlier snow melt and the more erratic snow melts and temperature swings, you know, that is going to have effect. It's going to get kits wet. I mean, one of the reasons that they move oh. their dens is because these kits get wet. So, um, you have, you know, a whole bunch of snow melt dripping through, a den say in March, um, that female has got to move that kit and, um, she can't keep it in, in there and that makes the kit susceptible to predation, but it also, you know, if the female's gone and she can't keep it warm, it could kill it. So there's, um, you know, there's a lot of concern there, I think in, in how this changing, um, you know, snowpack is going to affect their, that's, their resilience. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Caching is another component, Ag but... Um, again, it, it sort of reminds me of the caribou story. And when I was working in forestry, um, they started identifying uh, critical caribou habitat in the southern um, Selkirks and Purcells. Uh, and... Collar data was sort of showing there was like an elevation line, you know, roughly like more hits above and 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 below. But in the winter time, the caribou had an affinity for the north-facing slopes at higher elevations, and the steeper the slopes, the more they liked it, which was kind of the opposite of other ungulates. And I remember doing some forestry work where we were flowing way in high up into one of these areas and put snowshoes on and came down. And I just remember it was like, it all made sense because you're on 30 feet of snow on a steep, steep north facing slope. And you're actually like 30 feet up in the tree canopy. Oh. <laughs> so it was like, we learned the hard way. You tie a ribbon on a tree and then it's like, oh, we got to change the boundary. And you go back in the summertime and you're like, well, the ribbon's 30 feet up in the tree. And I remember going like, oh, I get it. Cause the caribou walk up and they're feeding on all this arboreal lichen. They can't get at any other time of the year. And so there was this relationship between caribou and snow and like you said, the quality of snow. So, I mean, they'd have to get those good, dense snow packs that they can sustain them on and not be melting in the middle of the wintertime. And so, again, I just kind of see this neat relationship between, you know, caribou needing snow and the wolverine needing snow and the, how, how climate change is, is impacting, you know, both of those. So, neat, neat story. There's mm -hmm. some work on <clears throat> wolverines that shows some similar. I mean, obviously, wolverines aren't using those types of habitats because they're trying to eat 
lichen in a tree or something like that. But yeah, they're, yeah. they they use those very complex, rugged, north-facing slopes because it's they, they love structure. Wolverines love structure. I know when you're walking through the boreal and you're tracking a wolverine and you lose its track for a second and you look ahead of you and you just look for some sort of structure on the landscape, you can probably pick up its track again because that wolverine just went straight to that structure and just checked it out and yeah, um yeah. they love it in the mountains too and and, and it, it's providing that structure for dens but it's also where the snow holds um and um and so it's you know that terrain ruggedness is you know an important component of wolverine habitat hmm interesting curtis is thinking they're like a fish they like structure yeah <laughs> That's pretty funny, walleye, right? <laughs> the wolverine, yeah, walleye, walleye, and wolverine both start with a W. Um, man, that's Matt. That's just like some really cool stuff about wolverines. Um, could probably go on for days learning about wolverines. <laughs> and Canada is such a big country, and it's you know there's all over the place, and the dynamics are so different. But really appreciate, yeah. You taking the time to share what you know about wolverines and highlighting some of the some of the places of conservation concern. I appreciate um, uh, yeah being um, being oh, on. Oh, it's and, great. Yeah, it I really enjoy your podcast. No, people people love listening to them because they're just like us. It's just like cool. Wow, we're learning these things about you know things that. You know, we've seen and experienced and stuff, and now you just kind of have that greater understanding. So you appreciate more and you can see more when you're out there, but then you're also, you know, become a stronger advocate for conservation when, you know, when, when you do know these things. So um, let's take a few minutes and, and do this thing where, where we talked about. So you have some, some kind of fast facts about Wolverines, questions. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, you can think of them off the top of your head. So, <laughs> so you, you, you'll forget more about Wolverines tonight than we'll know in our entire lifetimes. <laughs> so what we want you to do is, um, you're going to ask a question and then Curtis and I are going to like guess the answer and then we'll tally up who's, who's got the most number of right answers and then the loser has to buy the winner here um a canadian made whiskey of some kind sweet and then then we can buy one and send you one for being the game the game show host as well so (laughs) (laughs) um so uh, how uh, how do you how do you want to do this? You want to ask a question, and whoever gets the right answer first, you go. Yeah, that's sure. one point for Curtis or something like that. So, okay, let's uh, let's go. You got a, you got a pen and paper there, Matt. You keep track. Yeah. Um, got a hundred questions. <laughs> <laughs> how about um. What is unique about mustelids, but also Wolverine um, dentition, um, particularly as it relates to the molars? Are they flat? Um, is it that the uh, back one is sideways? 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or is that just the... I, I always thought that was just the way you could differentiate a skunk or that's all mustelids. See, mm. now I got the right answer and then I'm saying I didn't think I had the right answer, <laughs> but I don't know. That might disqualify me. That is the right answer. <laughs> so just so people know, like if you look at your molars, like they're all... You imagine them going from the front into the back, then the very... Is it the last one? Mm -hmm. Is actually turned sideways so it makes like a T or an L or something. So if you find a skull and you see that mm. last molar seems to be turned sideways, you know it was something from the weasel family. Which could be a skunk. Um, how about, um, what is the typical day that, um, that wolverines have their kits? The day, time of the day, or, or um, like, there's there's kind of a you know a day each year that I think Wolverine researchers always associate with the start of the um, time when when, oh, kid, when the kids are born. Okay, baby baby season. Has it got got something to do with the uh, the moon cycle? No. No. <laughs> no. I would guess it's got to be related to peak snowpack, which I think comes around peak pillow. When is peak pillow, Curtis? Uh, for us here, that's March. March 1st? Uh, Curtis, you have a guess, or...? Well, if it's not the, not the moon cycle, I'm guessing got to be something with the lack of daylight. So I'm going to go sometime around December 21st, the um, shortest day. Shortest day? Yeah. It's actually Valentine's Day. Oh. oh. We just had it. <laughs> oh, cool. Um. Well, shit, I did see that on an Instagram post. And it was something about Valentine's Day is Wolverine Day. And I'm like, I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. <laughs> I was like. So the gestation okay. period's like, you know, about 45 days. So sometime in January. And then they have their kits in mid mid um february but it, it can obviously vary huh. very hmm. okay. quite a bit okay. all the way to the beginning mm -hmm. of march mm -hmm. but i i um yeah imagine there's social well, we media. both get zero <laughs> <laughs> um what time of year do wolverines uh breed well you just you just said gestation is 45 days so early january but do they have like a delayed implantation like bears do uh. i i'm gonna say i'm gonna say it's sometime in the fall before before winter We'll go. We'll go. Mid October. 
mid-october okay i'll i'll push it up a little bit and go beginning of december it's actually it's actually like june um <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh so is it delayed june, in plantation it's then? over a number of months but um you know why exactly it's it's over you know a number of months maybe just because there's a little density and they have to find well, each that, other but it's, that makes it's sense, cause june july august maybe bears are breeding in spring june. yeah yeah Okay, we'll edit we'll edit that part out, Curtis. <laughs> um Yeah, when when do you know when does dispersal happen often for for Wolverines? So dispersal the young getting booted. That's got to be prior to the breeding season. So breeding season or prior to denning. I'm I'm gonna guess it's prior to the breeding season, so I'm gonna say like April May. Okay, I'm gonna go with prior to denning. So January ish. Yeah, it's it's the it's the spring, late spring. One thing we always notice in um, in the field site is wolverines show up from nowhere in March and April, and you, you've never seen them before, and then all of a sudden, some male shows up, and um, and, okay. and 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 that's where these hormones and social pressures kind of push these um, you know subadults out, and they start wandering and. Um, so you see a lot of very interesting dispersals. We had, yeah, I mean, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of kilometer dispersals. We, even, we saw a female go from Red, Red Lake, Ontario, all the way up to Muskrat Dam. And females are phylopatric, so they usually stay close to their where they're born, which would probably have been Red Lake. But she went, you know, hundreds um, of kilometers to the north, which is pretty rare for a female. But, yeah, usually hmm. sometime in the spring. Hmm, okay. Um. Got another one. Are are females as territorial as males? No. Yeah, I'm gonna go with no. I know they got they have a smaller range, but I don't know. Maybe they defend it more aggressively than the males would. I. Well, if you're if you're going no, then we can't both get a point. So I'll go yes. Well, why not? <laughs> <laughs> they they are pretty yeah they are pretty territorial. Um, oh. So both males and females have intersexual territoriality. So they um, you know they keep. Uh, so the females want to drive out other females. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And bite them on the head and roll. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe the females bite the males on the head, rip the tops of their heads off. <laughs> oh, the unknown world of wolverines. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I have to try to 
think of a what are some good nick what are some nicknames for for wolverines i don't th- i don't know if i've ever heard nicknames um trappers have some nicknames for um the one that comes to mind is it's it's got the word devil in it they call them devils and i can't remember if it was like the devil weasel or, or if it was just a devil like tasmanian devil <laughs> yeah Um, I think a Wally. One, what's that? Wally. <laughs> I think Wally the Wolverine. Um, yeah, something I, I do recall something to do with devils because they would get in and tear up cabins and get on a trapper's line and like eat all his Martin and they're just like, oh, damn you, devil. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's devil names associated with them. <laughs> I, yeah, I was thinking skunk bear. Uh, I have actually heard that. The skunk skunk bear. Yeah. Where's like where's their main um, scent gland, or where's or one of their scent glands? Anal. Yeah. Yeah. The butt. And are wolverines vocal, or are they? Are they? Mute, I guess. Pretty vocal, I'd say. Well, you told us they were vocal when they're trapped in a box. <laughs> they don't want to be in it. <laughs> yeah, they do. They um, there's a little bit more evidence of, that they they communicate with each other, but hmm. cameras and oh. videos have helped helped with that. Cool. Not to not just that, that growling type noises, but you know other. But type. yeah, other. Mm-hmm. The wolf serenading, calling. Huh. Cool. One, one more, one more. We can that we can get wrong. Um, what is? Yeah. What, what would be? I guess the. How are wolverines and avalanche shoots? Um, related. This is kind of maybe this is a great question. <laughs> oh uh, yeah, I know I know this one because they like to find the animals, specifically goats that have been knocked down by avalanches, and they'll dig them up. Yeah, that's no, uh, well, right there. That goat skull. That's what I think that one was. Uh, I'll concede that one because I think it's the right answer. Curtis got it. <laughs> it is. So I guess it's, it's four to four, according oh. to my. <laughs> oh. See, I I knew that one because I worked as a cat skiing guide for just about eight years, and I remember watching a video at kind of like a pro D avalanche professional workshop thing of some guy down in he was in Idaho had a bunch of abandoned wolverine kits that he had taken in and was training them to dig people out of avalanches because they could they can smell quite deep in the snowpack and they could smell people and he was training them to to tunnel down and find where they were 
for people who wouldn't have um, transceivers or or anything like that. Yep. The the project lost at funding when he couldn't get the Wolverine to stop eating the. That's exactly. I'm like. I think I take. Alive. I think I take my chances with a probe line over a Wolverine <laughs> coming screaming down the snowpack. Wow. I mean. I guess maybe a tiebreaker. Tiebreaker. What's the average weight in kilograms? I guess of uh, a female. Oh God, I hate kilograms and weight. Or or pounds. <laughs> 60 pounds? That's my answer. 60 pounds. Of a female? Yeah. Um, I'm going to be more like for a female. Average, 12. 12 pounds. Um, so about 20. Okay. So <laughs> that was my other guess because I was thinking a male would be more like 30. So, mm. yeah. Because they're blocky like a beaver. Yeah, I'd say like an adult male, like 33 to 35 pounds. So, yeah. Hmm. Uh, how about what, what age does a, does a female reach sexual maturity and breed? Mm. I'm going to go with four. I'll say that. Six. So yeah, it'd be Curtis. Oh, three to four. Nice. Really? Yeah. Bottle, huh. of, whis bottle of whiskey. Six is kind of like a grizzly. They only live to be, you know, they go through senescence starting at like maybe eight or nine. Okay. That means they okay. have like five no. years of reproductive. How, well, how long? How long do the kids stay with the mother? Is it just one season? Like. They don't read like like a bear. Do they den again that winter with? The... No, nope, yeah, so they're they'll, gone. So they'll the kits will stick around for probably two years, um, and then disperse. You know, after their second year. Um, okay. So um, juveniles will will stay around, and then um, but so like you're saying, like they'll have kits every. Um, you know, once they reach maturity, three-ish, four, they will have kids every other year, mostly. Mm. Unless they're in really good habitat and they have lots of food, they might, for a few years, have kids every year. But mostly, they they might only have kids a couple times. Well, so th three or four every, every other year because they've got sub-adults in tow for maybe one season. I see what you were saying earlier that they only live to like eight-ish that yeah like like an individual might only breed a female like once in her lifetime wow yeah i mean maybe a few once more. or twice yeah and they probably have i you know i think average annual number of kits maybe is about one you know yeah. between the ages of three and eight uh, or nine. So that means they're having two kits every other year, basically. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Huh. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, when you think about how, how important females are on these landscapes, it just means that if one female does not produce, um, you know, many females no. to take her place. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's so just like the, the incidental take by trapping or, or, or accidental 
run on a kill on a highway or something like that of one female in a fairly large home rain could have a significant like ripple effect for like years into the population really wow. Part particularly like and we've talked about this a little bit but particularly you know in in a place like you know the the, the mountains where where the habitat is real patchy and um mm. you know populations are pretty low density to begin with you know as you move north you know i think there's probably a bit more resilience there but you know their their female offspring will often take you know a portion of their range um once they pass or even when they're alive so they you know they stay they stay pretty close so um but um and teaching them well very well, cool thanks for that for uh hosting the game show so i owe curtis a canadian made whiskey somewhere along the line no problem perfect always, always <laughs> wanted to host the game show <laughs> um it's harder than you think folks don't don't go on tv thinking you know all the answers because when you have when you have a host that's like a scientist and he asks really tough questions like the exact date, day, <laughs> February fourteenth. I guess I'll in my forget. little world, it's um, you know, it's a well-known common much knowledge. Which more, more, yeah, we're just, the we're just, world. We're just idiots. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. He'll go to work tomorrow. Hey, these two guys on the podcast—they didn't know about February fourteenth. <laughs> 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 they thought it was for humans. <laughs> like the there'd be the Wolverine scientist jokes, eh? So. Huh. Matt, thanks so much for coming on and um, yeah, teaching us about wolverines. Um, yeah, you know, there's it, w when you got a hold of us and said, "Hey, this would be," you know, I think your listeners would would like this topic. I I totally agreed because there's there's so much out there. There's so much in Canada, um, you know, and I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I think. A lot of species deserve a lot more attention than they get both in understanding and education and conservation funding and monitoring and research but they're overshadowed by species that probably don't need as much you know as what they what they do um, understanding something about everything is important but man it's like grizzly bears and wolves get a lot of a lot of research and you know and yeah something like a wolverine that's a conservation concern you know a lot of the same like we talked about some of the same um, attributes as the endangered caribou some parallels with you know grizzly bears kind of thing but just never seem to be you know on on the news mm. or in the spotlight and i think the more more people should know about it so um i really appreciate you coming on and talking passionately about about wolverines yeah i appreciate you having me on i, I agree they they need more attention people think they're people everybody agrees that wolverines are awesome but not everybody has a lot of knowledge of their conservation issues or biology which i, I mm -hmm. think like you're saying is important yeah, I mean, you never see a social media outrage because a trapper caught a wolverine, but if they got a, caught a wolf or whatever, then it's like a big deal. And it's like, well, it's maybe more of a conservation concern, you know, depending on whether that was a female wolverine in the population or whatever versus, 
you know, the wolf, but it just, you know, the way, the way people nowadays react to these, these glorified animals, it's, and I mean, that's got to translate into funding too, right? Because, you know, money coming from private foundations or whatever, they like to ride the wave of popularity. and, And I'm sure you probably felt that over maybe your career where, you know, the species, you know, maybe funders are harder to get their attention than if you were studying something that was more popular, but... Wolverines are pretty sexy species, I would say. Oh, they are. <laughs> They're totally cool. Yeah, which which does help in some respects. And, um, you know, we get a lot of government funding, but you're you're also right that, that foundations, um, the foundations help us quite a bit. We get a lot of funding through the, the Weston Foundation, W. Garfield Weston Foundation. Okay. Um, yeah. Which helps yep. us quite a bit. Cool. But. Well, appreciate everything. Yep. Thanks for having me. We'll get you uh, a whiskey next Christmas. There you go. <laughs> cool. Take it the, away. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is sponsored by Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, British Columbia. Maybe you want to go out and see some wolverines. You don't have to chase them around because now that we've learned a lot more about them, maybe don't chase them around. They're way up in the alpine and snow areas and. So yeah, don't don't go chasing them around. But maybe drive up a road and throw up a spotting scope and, and see if you can spot one. So if you want to do that, go get some off-road tires. Go kit yourself out and uh, check out the folks at Alpine Toyota. We appreciate them continuing to be the title sponsor of our podcast. Uh, they're helping us bring conversations like we just had to you to inform you about conservation issues and hunting and science all across Canada. Uh, so thanks to them. They're also big supporters of Ducks Unlimited, which is pretty cool because I like ducks. <laughs> also, uh, if you want to check out the Hunter Conservationist on Patreon, we have our exclusive Patreon podcast, The Hunters Underground. We talk about lots of cool stuff uh, all over the map. There's kind of no filter, no set path. We just kind of let her fly sometimes. So if you want to hear us ramble away and maybe i'll be drinking my bottle of whiskey that i just won we may have a glass or two while we do that but uh, yeah if you want to check that out uh we'll put that in the show notes i believe it's patreon.com slash the hunter conservationist podcast that's also on our website at the hunter conservationist.com so go check that out cool thanks dr matt scrafford appreciate you coming on the show Thank you. And uh, hope you'll come back and we can just talk ice fishing because you're going to do more ice fishing and studying wolverines on the ice. <laughs> Sounds like a good deal to me. Cool. Really appreciate it. Um, thanks. And uh, hey, everybody, we'll see you in the next episode.